All right, so last week I told you to uh, read Malachi 3 and 4, wasn't it? Um, before we dive into Malachi 3 and 4, but you can turn there, let me, uh, let me give something of a review. Um, so I'll give a review, we'll go into Malachi, and I'll give another review more in-depth review. But at least let's let's set the trajectory so that we uh, understand where we've come from. So in the beginning, you have uh, what I've called the creation project. I keep referring to it as this. Now, why do I call creation a project? Uh, several reasons. First of all, if we see creation as a project, then it gives us the notion that it's not finished. It gives us the notion that it's ongoing and that we're part of it. Um, otherwise, if we just call it creation, we tend to look at it statically. We tend to look at it as if it's something that's done, something that's finished and completed. Uh, there's a danger of looking at looking at creation in that way. It's, I think, a common notion in Christian circles. But uh, the danger is that we will start to uh, have that notion influence our theology. And if we don't see that cre- the creation project is an ongoing project, it's a living scheme, um, we might be tempted to think that the world, the earth, the universe is just some kind of vehicle to get people saved. It's some ramshackle, uh, old, you know, moth-eaten, rusty piece of uh, tin on wheels that is eventually just going to just sputter down into nothing and be destroyed and replaced by a brand new model, new heavens and new earth. Um, the danger of that is that we have not factored into our understanding and into our theology of creation the fact that God did it. And God doesn't make things to go down and sputter into nothing. Um, when particularly you understand that God did it for his son, through whom all things are made and for whom all things are made, remember, Colossians 1.16, then I hope also you see that it's a gift from the Father to the Son. The world is a gift from the Father to the Son. Because that's the case, there is a logic that starts to kick in to your thinking when you conceive of creation in this way. Instead of thinking that it's just this old jalopy that's going to blow up uh, you know, this clown car that's going to fall apart. Um, it's actually something that's precious to God. And though it's fallen, and although it's cursed, those are two important points to make, that doesn't mean it's a failure. It doesn't mean that God has to switch to plan B. Okay, don't 
think that way. That is not the way the earth is presented in the Old Testament. This planet is not, is not presented by uh, either the Pentateuch and certainly not by the prophetic literature as being something that, that spirals down into um, nothingness to, replace, to be replaced by something newer and better. Now, we do know it's going to be replaced, but don't picture it as an old jalopy. That's what I'm saying. And even if you can't get the picture of a, a, a cranky old machine out of your mind, understand that because God the Father gave it to God the Son, it's not going to remain a cranky old machine because the person that made it can remake it, can fix it. Do you see? At least he can fix it so that it's something that does the job it was supposed to do in the first place. You okay with that? So... See creation as a project. Now, when you see creation as a project, there are two big words that I've uh, spoken about. The first one is teleology. Teleology. Sorry about the G. Now, my ministry is called telos, and telos is a goal or a purpose. So a, a teleological thing is something that has a goal, has a purpose. Um One of the things that men and women, people, it doesn't matter whether whether they've been Harvard educated, whether they've not had any education, uh, one of the things that they will stand before God and have to confess is that they know that there there is purpose in the world. And it doesn't matter how you deny it. You might deny it on one hand abstractly, but in every way that you function, everything you do, you, you know that things have a purpose. Um, so, what's your heart for? What's your heart for? Pump blood. Okay. What's your eye for? To see. To see. Okay. Yes. What's the clock for? Telling time. Things that are for things. Yes, your mouth is for speaking and eating and stuff like that. Things are for things and not for other, for other things. Do you see? You can't get away from purpose. You're surrounded by it. But whether you, you build that into the way that you conceive of the world is another thing. Do you see? But God is a God of purpose. And the creation project from Genesis 1 right through to Revelation, at the end of Revelation 20, has a purpose, okay? A teleology, it has a goal. But it also has an eschatology. Okay? A finish line or uh, an end time. Um, together, these two 
provide a consummation. of the creation project. And these two belong together. Do you remember I've said that? The, the teleological movement of the creation project is an eschatological movement. What I mean by that is that the goal to which things are, are tending is the eschaton, is the last times. Okay? the consummation of things. This means that from Genesis 1, we should see these two things together, which means that we should read the Bible as a purpose, the story has a purpose, it's going somewhere, even with the different meanderings that you find in Scripture and the different stories, it's going somewhere, it's telling a narrative, and... It has a, an eschatology, and that eschatology is not something you tack on to the end of a systematic theology, which has been a huge mistake, I think, by a lot of theologians. Because what this does, particularly if you're into um, biblical prophecy, what it tends to do is it tends to, to feed the sensationalistic side of us so that we study prophecy, but we study it independently of the goal. We study independently of, of the rest of the theology of the Bible, rather than saying the whole movement of the Bible is eschatological. You see? Now, I'm not saying if, you, if this was a systematic theology class, then we would be dealing with eschatology at some point. Most people tack it on the end. Uh, I'm not sure if it's best put on the end or not. I think it's it's best interwoven within all of the other things, but that's another thing for an, another set of courses. Um, but what we've got to be careful of is just focusing in on on one thing, okay? So we're just dealing with the end times. And if you see eschatology as starting in Genesis 1, you're not going to just have a, this faddish idea of, of just the end times. Do you see? It's moving towards the end times, but you've got to study the movement. You study the teleology and the eschatology of the Bible together. What that does is it, it then injects the Bible with energy. Do you see? This, you, you, in a sense, become part of the story. You see that it's going somewhere. It's like entering into a really well-told uh, novel. It's like you enter into it somewhat and you, you get involved with it. You get involved with the movement of things, yes? Because you know there's a journey to going somewhere. That's the way we should be reading the Bible too. Um, I said, I think it was in the first class, I said that What's called covenant theology is very good at this. Uh, covenant theology is that idea that there's one people of God under a covenant of grace that was made, I mean, just for simplification, in Genesis chapter 3. Okay? All of the elect of God 
are under the covenant of grace. If all of the elect of God are one people under the covenant of grace, then I hope you can see there is no church-Israel divide there. There cannot be two peoples of God. Do you see? There has to be one people of God. If there's one people of God, then what is said in the Old Testament about Israel must be transferable to what he said about the church in the New Testament. And to make it transferable, you have to read the Bible in a certain way. You have to spiritualize things. Do you see? This is just a basic understanding. But it has this teleology. Okay? It has this, this idea, this, this, what they call a history of redemption. Um, that runs through it. So if you read the biblical theologies of Gehardus Voss and Wilhelm van Gemmeren and people like that, uh, a lot of reformed guys have, have brought these out, especially recently. Uh, even going back to the Vitzius and back into the 17th century, they, they all have this idea, a redemptive goal. Because they have a, a redemptive goal uh, built in, to their teleology, then the cross of Christ becomes a central idea. Okay? That's where things are headed. Because things are headed to the cross, then that's where the interpretation must uh, gather and, and spring from. And another way of saying that is that uh, covenant theologians interpret most of the Bible by the first coming of Christ. Okay? By the cross and the resurrection. By the first coming of Christ. So, biblical prophecy that speaks of a golden age for the nation of Israel, for example, and salvation for Israel, is going to be interpreted through the lens of the cross. And that's where it finishes. In, in, as far as its literal meaning is concerned, then the meaning is all of a sudden understood to be, well, he didn't mean, God didn't mean it literally, actually, anyway. He meant it typologically. He meant it symbolically. And all of a sudden now, we understand, because we have the New Testament, what God was talking about in the Old Testament all along. Yeah? And I have a whole course on covenant theology um, from a critical standpoint, although an appreciative standpoint too, uh, uh, tell us. But they have a lot of teleology in their system. That's what's attractive about the system. Dispensationalism, yeah, dispensationalism, I'll say some more about, about dispensationalism, dispensations in a minute. Dispensationalism claims to have a literal hermeneutic, a face value hermeneutic, and indeed at its best it does. And I would be um, basically a dispensationalist, even though I've not said anything about dispensations in two courses and with now at the end of the Old Testament. And I'm not going to say hardly anything about them in the next course either. I'll tell you why in a minute. But dispensationalism highlights eschatology. Okay? Doesn't highlight teleology very much. Um, covenant theology doesn't highlight eschatology very much. It highlights teleology. So you'll find that covenant theologians 
you ask him, well, what are you? Are you an amillennialist, a post-millennialist? Or what are you? Historic premillennialist? They often will tell you, I don't know, you know, they're a pan-millennialist, it'll all pan out in the end. Yes? I've heard that before. In other words, they haven't really thought about it. They're not really, it doesn't, it's not a big deal to them, you know? They don't, they don't get off on the, on the prophecies of the Bible. The book of Revelation, it's just an encouragement book, you know? It's just completely symbolic and often they're not interested in it, really. Whereas dispensationalists are very focused on eschatology, but they're focused on the end times. Do you see? So they have no teleology. They don't connect it, really, to the whole storyline of Scripture. And they don't connect it very well to the work of Christ. Because they don't do those two things, it, A, appeals to the populist masses, so you get the left-behind series, okay, I know Tim LaHaye has just passed away, but, um, I mean, Left Behind's a load of rubbish, okay? I mean, it's, it's, the theology's all right, reasonable, but the writing's terrible. You know, it's terrible. It's Christian drivel. And, uh, unfortunately, that reflects, that reflects on the church, the fact that it's so badly done. Okay, it's populist stuff that um, may have been, you know, may have sold in the tens of millions a while back, but is now being plowed into the um, the trash dumps and so on by the tens of millions, with little or no effect, apart from you know it, it produced a big cottage industry for a while. Um, and then you get all these books with fiery dragons on them and, and, and solar eclipses. Have you ever seen, uh, it's hard to find a dispensationalist book that doesn't have a solar eclipse on it, on the cover. And, uh, a friend of mine, I won't say his name, but a friend of mine has just released a book, um, that, uh, deals with Israel and the, you know, the end times stuff. And, well, lo and behold, solar eclipse, or lunar, yeah, solar eclipse. Uh, if it's not solar eclipse, it's a dragon. Um, either way, I hope you can see, even though they've got the basic, they've got some important things right here, they've, they've divorced eschatology from teleology. So they're not reading the Bible eschatologically. They're just reading certain prophecies eschatologically and, uh, focusing, fixating, really. It's, fix, it's a fixation on the end times. I can remember being at the pre-trib conference several years ago in Dallas and I had a table set up. Um, and I was next to, a table of this guy and he was selling books America in Prophecy and then he had all of these other you know books as well and I just felt completely I didn't belong there you know I just didn't belong there um, I don't see that in the Bible anywhere 
But people make whole, in, uh, whole ministries out of these things. Okay? So um, what we've got to do is that we've got to take the strengths of both systems. We've got to make sure our teleology and eschatology go together in a system. Now, in order to do that, if that is correct, and these, these two things are involved in the creation project, there ought to be a mechanism that's in the Bible that's clearly identifiable that drives these two things. Okay? It's not the covenant of grace. How do I know it's not the covenant of grace? Simple, because the covenant of grace doesn't exist. Um, you cannot find it in the Bible. It is something that is arrived at outside of the Bible and forced onto the Bible, but you've already decided basically that, that the Bible teaches it. That's not a way to do theology. Remember, covenant theology interprets things by the cross. Okay? So it, it starts at the cross and reads backwards. It reads the Bible backwards, basically. Um, and it's not by the dispensations. We've, we've had two courses now where we have done a pretty close study of the book of Genesis and we have looked carefully at the prophets. Have you found the word dispensation anywhere? Economy? Epoch? Any of that? Have you seen that highlighted in your reading of the Bible? The book of Ephesians talks about dispensations, but we're not in Ephesians. We're in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament doesn't know anything about dispensations. What do you do with that? If you say, well, yeah, but they're there, I mean, might not explicitly say that because the Bible doesn't explicitly say that God's a trinity. So maybe dispensations are like that. Well, maybe they are. Well, put it to the test. Okay, I remember the, the rules of affinity? A clear, direct reference that tells you with the Trinity, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, yet God is one and undivided. What is the only logical conclusion you can come to? It's an inevitable conclusion that drives those propositions that God is three and one at the same time. There's one God and yet he is expressed in three Persons or hypostasis, whatever terms you want to use. Is that the case with the dispensations? Where do you find any direct reference to dispensations in the Old Testament? You don't. Nothing like it. You say, well, hold on a minute. You know, that sounds heretical. That sounds... Look, I don't care what it sounds like, folks. I mean, you just can't find it. You just can't. Moreover, um, where's me thing? If we look, I believe the dispensations have got much more right than the covenant theologians, by the way. Much more. I agree with them 95% of the time. But let's look at, um, anyone got a Schofield reference Bible? No? Okay. 
the Schofield Reference Bible, you will find that there is uh, an Adamic and, in, and an Edenic covenant in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Folks, if you're using a plain sense hermeneutic, there is no covenant in Genesis 2. There is no covenant in Genesis 3. You cannot claim to be using a plain sense hermeneutic and find a covenant in Genesis 2 and 3. The first covenant in the Bible is the Noahic covenant, and it's right there. You can't miss it. And what's interesting is that all the liberal scholars, they all see it. They all see it. It's the evangelical scholars that read into the Bible. The liberal scholars tell you that the earth was created, the world was created in six literal days. They don't believe it, but they say the Bible teaches it. It's the evangelicals that tell you it wasn't because they're trying to hitch their uh, cart to modern science. Do you see? Same with the local flood. Some liberals will go for the local flood traditions and so on, but um, you don't find the covenants that are mentioned by many good dispensational scholars. You don't find them in the Bible. They're not there. But Schofield, you see, was a Presbyterian, and then he was a Congregationalist, and those statements of faith that you have to sign up to have a covenant of grace and a covenant of works, which were just flipped and made into the the Adamic covenant and the Edenic covenant, or the other way around. Do you see? Because in order to stay in that that fellowship, they had to agree to, like the Westminster Confession of Faith and John Walford's uh, position or the Savoy Declaration with Schofield and Lewis Berry Schaefer. So what about, uh, what about dispensations? All right, well, let's have a look at some dispensations. Do you, are you familiar with the dispensational viewpoint? Okay, so the first one is supposedly innocence, yes? Which I can never spell. Does that look right? It's not right, is it? Is it? All right. Conscience. Uh, what's the next one? Government. Next one's promise. Next one's law. The next one's grace or the church. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. Well, I've missed one. Which one? Is, what have I missed? Anything about sin? Hmm? Anything about sin? No, no, that's, that's this one. There's one I've missed, but, but, uh, anyway. Let's just have a look at these. Forget, forget, empty your minds, okay? Forget about trying to make logical connections that you've been told are there. Just look at the words. Just look at the words. So you're teaching homeschool. You're teaching a kid. Okay? 
Is that the same as that? Is it in the same category? Is it in the same category of words, of meanings? No. That's got nothing to do with that. It's not even in the same category. It's not, it wouldn't be grouped if you were, had semantic meanings grouped together. You'd separate these words. They're not in the same semantic category. Neither's that. Government and innocence. Government and promise. This is a different, a completely different category. Do you see this? Um, innocence. Okay. What's supposedly innocent is Adam before the fall. Well, yeah. I would agree with that. And by the way, I think all Christians, whether they're dispensationalists or not, would agree that Adam and Eve were innocent. Okay? That the innocent their meaning technically that they had not sinned. But there was a possibility for them to sin, which of course they did. But they were innocent because they hadn't sinned, they hadn't transgressed. That's what that means. And that's correct. Is that a dispensation though? Is that an economy? Is that is that did God put them under a a, a, a responsibility to be innocent? You don't read that anywhere. They just were innocent. I mean, you say, well, yeah, there was, we know they were supposed to be. But God didn't give them a revelation saying, you're supposed to be innocent. Do you see that? Which is what dispensationalism requires for it to be a dispensation. But, so they fell, and then supposedly you have conscience. All right, they now are conscious of the fact that they're sinners and they're separated from God. And again, that's true. But is it a dispensation? Is it an economy? Because what about conscience here? What about conscience here? What about conscience here? What about conscience here? Why is this the dispensation of conscience when there's just as much conscience over here? Why couldn't this be called the dispensation of conscience? In fact, more so because the law comes in to what? Magnify the knowledge of sin. So really, what's that telling you? It's not telling you anything. Because ever ever since this stopped, conscience has been... In the world. Yes? You can't say that God gave a special dispensation here. Now what you might say is God gave a dispensation here and that dispensation bleeds into all of the other dispensations so that they accrue. There's problems with that when you get to here and here. Because what happens when grace comes? There's law. Do you believe we're under the law? Well, this one, this one doesn't bleed into this one then, does it? So you, you see that the system is not, it has problems. Just looking back at it and looking at it as a system, it has problems. What about government? Government is the way you rule or punish. But 
government is a very different category to conscience. I mean, of course, these people have consciences, but what's government got to do with the idea of conscience? And then promise. All right, so there's a promise. But isn't there a promise here? Genesis 3.15. Pretty big one, I'd say. Isn't there a promise here with a Noahic covenant? See what I mean? Why is this promise, Abrahamic covenant? All right. Um, and I want to rub salt into the wound here, okay? Um, but here you have the Noahic covenant, and here you have the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, what do you find when you read the Bible? Do you find this or do you find this? What do you find? What do you find promise or do you find the Abrahamic covenant? What's, what does God focus on? Covenant. He doesn't focus on dispensations for five seconds. He doesn't focus on dispensations for five seconds. I'm not saying they're not there, but I am saying they're not important. So don't build a theological system on something that God does not think is important. I had a, a little debate, friendly conversation with a dispensationalist online where he wanted to say that it doesn't matter what you call this dispensation. You can call it the dispensation of covenant if you want. I said, so, but we're still, we're still linking what God says, covenant, to something that God doesn't say, dispensation. And dispensation is driving covenant. Where do you get, where does this idea of dispensation get all of this authority from? I can see the authority for covenant is right there. God's calling my attention to it. Where's the authority for this dispensation? No, moreover, you're saying that this is the dispensation of covenant? What's this? This is a covenant, isn't it? The millennium, that's the seventh. That's a dispensation, isn't it? Is there a covenant? According to most dispensationalists, not, you know, we'll get into that later here. Many dispensationalists anyway including some people that I worked with, good people, the new covenant is only made with Israel in the millennium. So that's a dispensation of covenant too. So then if it's a dispensation of covenant, can you see the word dispensation is completely superfluous because you still have to ask what covenant? Where's the focus? The focus is on the covenant, not on the dispensations. You see what I mean? For people that say that they believe the Bible is face, at face value, um, they are they are they are guilty of what uh, many Reformed theologians say they're guilty of. 
And that is not seeing that they're reading their presuppositions into the Bible. There aren't any, there's no mention of dispensations in the Old Testament. Are they there? Yeah. But covenant theologians say they're there too. You can read Louis Burkhoff, you can read Willem van Gemmeren, he has 12 of them in his book, The Progress of Redemption. He has 12. Old uh, buddy of mine, Chris Cohn, in his book, on, and he's a strong dispensationalist, he has 12. So do you see the problem? Schofield has seven. But why seven? Uh, if you say millennium here, for example, and you're a pre-tribulationist like I am, is there something missing between the church and the millennium? What's missing? Well, the rapture, what happens after the rapture? No, no. The tribulation. Isn't the tribulation? Isn't that a dispensation? Do you see why, if it's not a dispensation, why isn't it a dispensation? Do you see, maybe it's because I'm a theologian, okay? And I've read a lot of theology and philosophy. But when you analyze this system, they're on the right track. They get a lot of things right. But they put it together all wrong. It's illogical. It doesn't stand up under scrutiny. Now here's something else. Um, and this is, I, I'm asking you to put your thinking caps on here. We'll get to the Malachi in, in a second. Put your thinking caps on. This is the word of God, isn't it not? This book describes reality. The way things are. You disagree with this book, you're wrong. Okay? So, if you've got a worldview, your worldview is only correct if it lines up with this book. Here's a problem. Because of, I've rubbed it out, but because covenant theology recognizes the importance of teleology and purpose, it can create a worldview and does. A lot of emphasis on worldview in reformed theology. All right? Abraham Kuyper, Cornelius Van Til, people like that who've done some fantastic work in worldview. Dispensationalists have never produced a worldview from this, the dispensational system because they're not connected to teleology. They're not connected to purpose. They're not connected to a, a narrative and a story. They can, they're fixated on the end. You see? So many dispensationalists will tell you that their focus is really only on eschatology and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the last times. You know, what about the doctrine of God? What about the doctrine of Christ? What about the doctrine of salvation? What about 
the doctrine of creation. Oh, we'll just hitch our wagon to the reform guys. Guys, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're denying, therefore, that your system is a system if you do that. It's actually what? It's a parasite on another more complete system. How can that be biblical? Folks, if reading the Bible at face value, which I've been teaching you, that God means what he says, if all it produces is ecclesiology and eschatology, give up reading the Bible and, and believing what it says. Because if that's all it can produce, then obviously you can't read the Bible that way. It doesn't produce what it should. But we've seen that it produces a great deal, doesn't it? A huge amount. And it's hard to get it, keep it in your head. You wait till we get into the New Testament. It's an accruing story. So what, what restricts dispensationalists? And I'm, I'm a friendly critic. Okay. What restricts dispensationalism from having a worldview? From writing a full systematic theology that doesn't piggyback on reformed theology? And just, you know, introduces differences in ecclesiology and eschatology. What stops it? This is what stops it. Dispensations. Dispensations. Because dispensations, divine administrations or divine economies, here's where you have to think, are descriptive. They're descriptive. So, I go to uh, Chris here. I hope I'm still going to be in camera, but so I've got a bottle of pills here, and I plonk them down there, and there's no label on them. Maybe the name's on there, some unpronounceable um, Greco-Roman Arabic name that's on there, who knows, that somebody's made up. Um, and it tells you all, all the different ingredients of the pills. Would you take one? I, tell, I, I, I say, take one. It, te- it tells you. It, it describes what it is. Okay? Just take one. Would you take one? No. Why not? What, what do you want? What do you need? So we need, when we have pills, what do we need? A, what do we call the information? A prescription. Not just a description. We need a prescription that tells us something about what it's for. Dispensationalism is not prescriptive. Because dispensations are not prescriptive, they're descriptive. And that's why dispensationalists have been awful at producing worldview, apologetic stuff. Or good counseling, biblical counseling materials. They ought to because they're supposed to take the Bible at face value, but why don't they do it? Because they've hooked their whole theology to the wrong thing and define themselves wrongly. 
they're not in their in their best incarnation, they're not dispensationalists. I wish that I could get that word dispensation and stomp on it and burn it and destroy it from the dictionary. Especially the theological dictionary. It's minor. It's minor, folks. Who cares about some description that you know, God gave uh, Noah something, you know, to do? Build an ark. All right, great. Punish evildoers. Fine. You set a whole big thing of government on that and then define the system that way? Really? And what are you missing? You're missing what God is actually saying. There's a covenant in there, folks. There's a covenant. That's the important thing. Not the boat. Not the boat and not the punishment for evildoers. Those are things that are part and parcel of what God is, the ongoing story. But the thing that God is speaking about and calling our attention to is his covenant. Covenant theologians, I, they, they stole the name. Okay? They don't have, they don't pay attention to the biblical covenants. They flatten them out and, and pass through them as if they're all the same covenant. Because they've got this redemptive idea of everything leading up to the cross. Dispensationalists, some of them talk about covenants, but then they hitch them up to dispensations. And they mute them, they destroy them, they stop them burgeoning out and doing what we've seen they do. But folks, kick dispensations to the touch, which is what I've done in these last two courses. I haven't even brought it up until the, this is the last uh, lesson of the second course. We're 24, you know, two and a, well, two hour lessons or whatever it is that you have to endure every week. This is the only time I've mentioned them. Have you understood the Bible? Have you understood the story? We're going to put it all together in a minute, but you don't need them. What you do need, what you have to have, are the dispens, are the covenants, uh, <laughs> blast, are the, we'll edit that one out, are uh, the covenants, um, why do you need the covenants? All right. Because what are covenants for? The Bible tells you what they're for. You don't need to, you know, Go asking around. Hebrews chapter 6, Galatians chapter 3. It settles a, an issue between two parties. How does it settle it? By the terms, the words that it uses that are understood by both parties and that are agreed upon by both parties. So that means that covenants must be interpretatively clear 
They must mean what they say. Because covenants are about big things, like no more flood, like Abraham's seed, like the land, like the promised one, like the Davidic kingship. These are big things, like salvation. Because they're about those things, then when they're made, let's get these things up out the way now. When they're made, they they um, augment the creation project. Okay? So, the Noahic Covenant is made with the whole world. The animal kingdom, everything. The whole world. Okay? No more flood. What it deals with is what we call uniformity. Not uniformitarianism. Uniformity. The uniformity of nature is guaranteed by the Noahic Covenant. Is there a world, did anyone see a worldview implication in that? Paul, somebody, John, you're a smart guy over there. All right. Stop pointing at other, uh, each other. Can someone show me a worldview implication of God saying in Genesis 8.22 that um, while the earth remains, summer and, uh, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, the seasons, it's all going to remain the same. No. How about science? Doesn't science need the uniformity of nature? Don't you need to know that what the world will be the same tomorrow as it is today, if you believe we're here by cosmic accident and there's no purpose to it, you don't have a guarantee for uniformity. David Hume uh, proved that a couple of centuries ago. Tried to destroy um, Christianity and ended up destroying atheism. Christianity, Judeo-Christian worldview has a basis for science. It's because people like Newton and Kepler and Kelvin and so many others, Maxwell, it's because they knew that the world was guaranteed to be the way that God made it tomorrow and they were, they, uh, there was a mandate to go and explore and investigate that they did science. That's a worldview implication. But if you tie it to a dispensation, you knock this out because your focus isn't there. If you tie it to the covenant, which is where God does, you right away, a big worldview implication comes into view and a big apologetic uh, piece that you can teach your children. 
comes into view. Do you see? That's how the Bible should work. That's what the truth does, because it's prescriptive. So the Abrahamic covenant has three um, parts to it. So it deals with the uh, descendants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Remember the child of promise. Okay? It deals with the land... Genesis 15. Now these particularly uh, are strong in Genesis 15. They're highlighted. And then it deals with uh, the nations. In you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Those three things. Phineas, Numbers 25. That deals with the Zadokite priesthood as we've been looking at. Moses, I put parentheses around here because this is a temporal covenant. Hebrews calls it the old covenant that is coming to an end, being replaced by the new covenant. Yeah? So, because this one's bilateral, this one's unilateral, this one's unilateral, this one's unilateral, this one's bilateral. Israel broke it. And you can't You can't live up to this one, the law. So it's going to be replaced. The Davidic one obviously deals with the kingship and the kingdom. Now, it deals with the kingdom of Israel first, but then it also deals with the the world as a kingdom. Remember Daniel 2. Remember Daniel 7. Remember... Isaiah 11, remember Jeremiah 33. These deal on a global scale with, uh, with the kingdom. How can it do that? How can it focus on Israel as a kingdom and the world as a kingdom? Well, easy. It's right here. There's the world. There's a king. There's Israel. It's in the Abrahamic covenant. If your theology is not round the twist, you won't confuse those two things. Now, here's the kicker. We're at the end of the Old Testament and we've uh, we've tra- traversed a lot of pages and a lot of centuries. Have you seen any changes or any reversals of these covenants? You haven't, have you? In fact, what you find is... Uh, um, give me glasses. Oh, they're down here. Um, what you find is that the Abrahamic covenant in Jeremiah 33 is quoted as a sand of the sea. Yeah? The Davidic covenant in Jeremiah is quoted by Jeremiah. Psalm 105 quotes from these covenants 400 years, 500 years plus afterwards, after they're made. Um, Isaiah says, and I can't find the reference straight off, uh, it is as the waters of Noah to me, dealing with his promises to Israel. 
Well, that's an easy one to figure out. Does anybody here believe God's going to bring a global flood again? Why not? Because he means what he says. Because covenants have got to mean what they say. This is where covenant theologians go off the rails because they change the meaning of the biblical covenants because they don't emphasize the biblical covenants. They invent their own. So what what you have, two important things. You have here huge markers that that uh, are all going, they've got, both got teleology and eschatology built into them, okay? They're moving the story of the Bible along. You cannot introduce a teaching, let's call it... Um, HT. You can't introduce a heretical teaching because that's basically what it is. I mean, I could use a nice term and maybe I should use a nice term, but um, I'm not saying these people are heretics and we should go burning them or, you know, doing horrible things to them or eschewing them. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that these teachings are false if they cause any of these covenants to not mean what they say, if they threaten any of these covenants, any of these oaths of God. Folks, we've seen in Jeremiah 34 particularly, although Ezekiel talks about it too, uh, we've seen that God does not like it when people do not live up to their oaths. He expects us to do it. Which means either he's duplicitous because he's got double standard, he expects us to live up to our oaths, but he doesn't live up to his, or the one I prefer because it's uh, more in line with the Bible's disclosure of God. Once I get my logic into a not a magisterial role, but under the authority of the Bible then I see that it is absolutely impossible for God to have that double standard. Because it's impossible for God to have that double standard, he must mean what he says in these covenant oaths. That is a guarantee that these things will happen. So anything that threatens the realization, the eventual literal fulfillment of these covenant promises is wrong and must be thrown out. Yes? The church is not Israel, folks. Cannot, cannot be because of this teaching. These promises are made to Israel, the nation, Jerusalem, the land of Canaan. They're they're sworn by an oath by God. And he keeps repeating them as we've seen again and again and again and again and again. He means what he says, folks, because covenants must mean what they say. If they don't mean what they say, the person who made it and wrote it is what? 
Tell, just tell it like it is, okay? Pretend it's not God and pretend it's just another person. Somebody who writes a covenant and he's using the words to give you an expectation that he knows he's not going to fulfill is what? He's a deceiver, he's a liar. At most, he's a, at the least, sorry, he's a prevaricator. And you can't trust a prevaricator. But God wants us to trust him. This is good stuff. Because, why is it good stuff? Because you see how, how self-correcting this is? If you're tempted to wander down these, these avenues of your own logic, independent of what the Bible says, and say, oh, this must mean this. You can, by just thinking, hold on, well, that's not what God says. So that can't be true because he's made a covenant that this must happen. So God cannot be through with Israel. He can't be through with the priesthood. He can't be through with the throne of Israel, the throne of David. Do you see? I've got to, I've got to, whatever my theology is, I've got to keep those things sacrosanct. So this idea that I had that doesn't fit with that, what do I do? I say, oh, that just comes from my uh, misuse of God's gift. That is, again, what we've looked at, Eve before the tree. Our default setting is to be independent from God, to think independently of God. Faith brings us in line with the, with the Bible. Our independence takes us away from the Bible. And that's what's happening when you have theologies that introduce teachings that collide with these clear biblical teachings. The teleology and the eschatology of the Bible, which are repeated over and over and over again. Okay, so... Having said that then, let's look at Malachi 3 and 4 and then we'll come back, we'll jump back and do some more of this and and paint the picture. Here we are, right at the end of the Old Testament. Last chance, it's the last chance for God to actually tell us what he means, okay? Otherwise, he's in danger of having a whole, whole generations of Jews believing things that Evidently, they shouldn't believe. So here's his last chance to tell them what he really means. Chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's quoted, as uh, most of you know, by the Gospels. And uh, applied to who? John the Baptist. Okay. First coming then, yes? Okay, good. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Okay, um, that could be Jesus coming to the temple and driving out the people at the first coming. Maybe. Let's see. Let's keep reading. Even the messenger of the covenant. What covenant's that? Hmm, don't know. Think about it though. When you see that, think about it. What covenant could that be? 
in whom you delight. Well, they didn't delight in him, in Jesus, when he came the first time to the temple. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Remember when God said he's coming in Zechariah? What did he mean? He's coming to dwell with his people. He's actually coming to earth to dwell there and rule there. That's what Zechariah says. Who can endure the day of his coming? Well, plenty of people endured the first coming of Christ. No problem at all. I mean, it didn't skip a bit, it didn't skip a beat at all. Those that followed him, um, you know, had an upset. Uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, tragic that he was crucified. But as far as the, the rest of humanity is concerned, it wasn't a big deal. Who can endure the day of his coming? Plenty of people endured the first coming. Who can stand when he appears? Loads of people. Well, he's like a refiner's fire and like launderous soap. A fire? He's coming, what, what, what does fire do? What does soap do in this context? Oh, cle- yeah, cleanses. With the fire, uh, uh, the, you've got poetic um, parallelism here, fire and soap. So the, 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 the fire is functioning like the soap to cleanse. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Well, when did he do that? At his first coming? I think he had rather a rough time with the chief priests, didn't he? When did he purify the sons of Levi? Why would he have to purify the sons of Levi? The priestly covenant that God made. Do you see? Maybe that's the covenant that's mentioned in verse 1. Maybe. Something about these covenants that we've seen, uh, though, is that as the prophets use them, they merge them together. They don't stand independently. They start to be merged into one picture that's complementary. You see? Purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Well, they certainly didn't do that in the first coming. This is not the first coming, folks. This is not the first coming. This is the second coming. And what have we seen? Are you taking the mickey over there? I get... Are you taking the mickey because I get excited? No. Oh. Because you're making me all um, self-conscious. Um, this is the second coming. Now, what have we seen in the Old Testament? We've seen the first, what we call the first coming, and the second coming fused together. We saw it in uh, Isaiah 9. We saw it in Malachi 5. 
we saw it in Isaiah 61. I mean, Jesus himself cuts that verse off at the, before he says the day of vengeance. The first and second coming, what we call them, are one work. And they're fused together by the prophets as one work. Even if you go way back to Genesis 3.15 and you have the skull-crushing seed, okay, uh, you find that the, the two advents, in a sense, not quite, uh, are there. The first advent is there. He will crush your heel. That's, that's the first coming. You will crush his head. That's not the second coming. That's actually right at the end of his reign in Genesis, in Revelation 20. Although you might call it the, you might call it the, uh, the first coming, but Satan doesn't really get his until the end of the tribulation. But you can interpret that either way. It works either way. But you have the first and second comings fused together. When we take communion, we celebrate that. We celebrate the first and second comings together. Are you aware of that? They're fused together to tell you it's one work. That's how it's, pre- that's how it's presented in the, in the Bible. So, this is the first and second coming fused together. Again, where's the focus though? Where's all the attention? On the first coming or on the second coming? On the second coming. The weight falls on the second coming, usually in the prophets and also in the Pentateuch. You have those places, Isaiah 53 most notably, and in Psalm 22, where you have that detail of of the first coming. But even there... Look at the surrounding context. The surrounding contexts are second coming passages. Okay? About the reign of, of Christ. The focus is not on the cross. So if you've got a theology that is focused on the cross, as, as important as the cross is, If you're interpreting the Bible by the cross, you've got the wrong trajectory. You need to be interpreting the Bible by its consummation, which is the second coming. That's when, uh, if I can jump ahead here, that's when the one for whom this world is made, the one who came to earth as a man and died in his own world, that's when he comes back to reign gloriously upon it. That's the big deal. Not the fact that he was crucified as a criminal in it. That's a big deal because of the love of God that's expressed there. But as far as the glory, that's not the cross. The glory is the second coming. That's when he gets the glory. That's what it's all about, guys. Think of it more from God's perspective than from our perspective. Then you see again the creation project. 
comes into view again. And we're part of that movement. Now, keep uh, reading here. Where, if it's the second coming, folks, where can you have priests who are purified? Where do you read in the Old Testament that you have purified priests? Have we read anywhere in the Old Testament? Or is this just Malachi adding something new? And and where on earth would they off, offer offerings in righteousness anyway? Because the temple's been destroyed since 70 AD. Do we find a temple, a different kind of a temple anywhere in the Old Testament? Where priests who are sanctified offer offerings? Come on, come on, come on. Where? Which book? Zechariah, yes, chapter 14. One point for Zeke for that one. Anyone want to go for the two points here? Isaiah and Jeremiah, the both sides. John gets one point just for, um, yeah, half effort. How about Ezekiel? How about Ezekiel 40 through 48? There's a temple there, remember? And there are priests there that officiate. And the Zadokites are allowed to come close and actually offer offerings before the Lord, but the rest of the Levites aren't. Do you remember that? There's no high priest in that temple for a reason that we know from Psalm 110 because God's glory will come into that temple. And Jesus will be the high priest, as he is. So this fits with what we've already read. And it, and it also ties up with the priestly covenant. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near... You for judgment be a swift witness, and he says, against all these, uh, these sinners. And therefore, look at verse six. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Folks, when you see Jacob, that's Israel. That's the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was named Israel. The reason Israel's not consumed is that it's covenantally bound to God. So much so that in uh, Jeremiah, uh, I think it's 33. Jeremiah called, uh, God calls Israel, O virgin of Israel. What do you mean? They're off, they're off to Babylon. Virgin of Israel. Hosea 2 says at the end there, I'm your husband. I'm your, God says, I'm your husband. You're married to me. You're mine. That's how seriously God takes his relationship with Israel. Zechariah, remember, called them, you're the apple of my eye. That's why they're not consumed. 
That's why Jeremiah chapter 33 and uh, verse uh, somewhere around um, 22, somewhere around that, 23. Uh, he says, there are people that say, well, let's just turn to it because I'm going to paraphrase it and make a big mess of it. Listen to this. After he's, he's uttered all these covenants, he says this. Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off? That's replacement theology there. People say they've cast, you know, God has cast Israel off. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before them. I am the Lord, I do not change which means his word doesn't change, therefore you're not consumed. Folks, make the application. You're, you receive Jesus Christ as your saviour. God doesn't change, therefore his word to you doesn't change. You're banking on that for your soul salvation. Well, guess what? So is Israel. Or so were the people, the righteous people in the Old Testament. So were the righteous people in the tribulation. He's the same God. He doesn't change. That's why you can trust him. Um, Okay, chapter 4. I wish that uh, I could do more of this, but we have to go to chapter 4 of Malachi. Watch carefully. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. That's not the first coming. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. They're going to get burned up. Cool. Wow. They're going to get burned up. They're going to get um, judged. We've, we've, um, read about that, have we not? Are you okay? You, you all, you, you started wobbling there for a while, you two. You lot. Um, the, yeah, the earthquake interrupted us. Um, what I'm saying is that um, God is going to judge and do away with evildoers. We've read that all through the prophets. God's coming to judge. Remember Isaiah 2. He's coming in righteousness with, you know, with justice, to deal out justice, to deal with the wicked. Second coming. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You've, if you've got a modern translation, you might have um, a slightly different translation with healing in its wings. Okay? Uh, the Hebrew... It can be translated either um, it's, you know, with a, a neuter or with a masculine. 
Either way, I think this is a reference to Christ. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. Remember, Zechariah dealt with this kind of stuff. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, then look at what he says. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Um, Let's get rid of this. Moses. which I commanded him in in Horeb for all Israel with statutes and judgments. The law that came from Sinai, that's not all, that's not Deuteronomy or Leviticus or any of that. That didn't come from Sinai. The law of of Exodus 20 through 24, what's called the Book of the Covenant. Remember that. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. And some of it is peculiar to Israel, for example, the Sabbath, but it's it's good stuff. Remember that. Behold, I will send you Elijah. The prophet. Before the great the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, what's been what's the great and Dreadful day of the Lord in Malachi. What is it in the Old Testament? Not so much Draco Strauss, that's the uh, tribulation beforehand. Well, what is it? It's the second coming. It's the second coming. It's not the first coming. You say, well, yeah, but doesn't the New Testament deal with it? Yeah, but when we get to the New Testament, we'll deal with this reference. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Um, look at verse 5. Who are the last three people mentioned in the Bible, in the Old Testament? The last three persons mentioned in the Old Testament. And the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Who's on the Mount of Transfiguration? What were they discussing? According to Peter, what was the, what was it all about when they saw his glory? We'll get, we'll get to it in the next course. Okay? Moses, Elijah, the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you're going to see these people crop up at the Mount of Transfiguration. And I think you're going to see them in the book of Revelation too. Although we have to, some work to do to, uh, to ferret that out. All right. We are at the end of the Old Testament and the covenants have not changed and the promises are the same. So let's have a look at these 
at these promises. And Mariana has, uh, has given us this, uh, this great piece of, uh, of work that she's put together. But we need to put references in to some of these uh, pigeonholes here. So, uh, God's judgment on his enemies, well, we've just seen that theme in Malachi. It's in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Malachi. We just read it. So, uh, you can put a little X in Malachi there. If you want to put chapters 3 or 4 in Malachi, you can. In Zechariah, if you want to put it in chapter 8, chapter 8, and chapters 12 through 14, probably chapter 10 too, that's in Zechariah. Zephaniah is all about the day of the Lord, but particularly chapter 3. Micah, we've got Micah there. Um, I think it's in chapter 5 that he deals with that. Remnant, yes. Uh, Amos, he does deal with it. I just can't think where without uh, looking. Hosea certainly deals with it. Um, chapter 2 of Hosea is really a, a key focus there, but there are other, other passages in Hosea. We can, let's see, i go there quickly. Chapter 5 and 6 deal with that. Uh, Hosea is mainly about judgment to, uh, against Israel, but does deal with that. Uh, Daniel, you don't so much have judgments against, or Israel overcoming its enemies, but you have Messiah overcoming the enemies. And that's in chapter 7 and in chapter 12. Um, there are places in uh, the major prophets where you see those things. Uh, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, um, Isaiah 40, uh, 65 and 66. You'll find it in Ezekiel 34 and 36 through 39. It's not what all of these chapters are about, but you'll see these themes in them. 
Jeremiah, I can't think where it, it is uh, right now, actually. Maybe chapter 4, but I can't, I can't think, actually. The kingdoms, the beasts, and so on. Well, that's obviously in Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter 7, particularly. But you also see... Um, you see that uh, there are kingdoms coming against Israel. And so that's why you got Zechariah there, isn't it? Yeah, chapter 12 and so on. Because the nations come against Jerusalem. And there are some other passages that deal with that in other places. Um, the heavenly beings, well, you find that in Isaiah chapter 6, but you find it eschatologically in uh, Ezekiel chapter, you relate Ezekiel chapter 10 with Ezekiel chapter 28 and then with the temple imagery. Jerusalem and the temple, well, that's all over. I mean, you just, you can't get, yeah, that's just everywhere. Yeah, so you have to go, th- go through your notes and you'll have these references. Again, dwelling in the land, it's not just dwelling in the land, it's dwelling in the land safely. Okay, dwelling in the land safely. That's key. So again, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11. Um, is it 50? Um, where am I? Oh, uh, Isaiah 49, by the way, if you want to see the, uh, the nation serving Israel. Chapter 60, let me just, I've got this in my mind. 62. Restoration of Israel to the land. That's key in many passages, but uh, if you want to see it in Amos chapter 8 and 9, you'll see it a lot there. You'll see it in Micah chapter 4, Ezekiel 34, right through to 48. You'll see this emphasis on this is Israel's land. God says it's my land, and he says it's Israel land, Israel's land, your land. Okay? Hosea, again, deals with that. It's a common theme. It's threaded through. Chastisement and warning. Well, you see that in the tribulation passages that we've looked at. Um, Jeremiah 30 and a whole, uh, Isaiah 61, 63. whole bunch there. Um, mercy and forgiveness and so on. Uh, well, think of Zephaniah 3. That's a great passage for that. The remnant, okay, or the saints of the Most High, because they are called the saints of the Most High in Daniel chapter 7. Um, but this doctrine of the remnant that shows up throughout, that we've looked at, this is, this is what Paul is going to pick up on in the book of Romans. So it's important that uh, you understand that by remnant, he means that the saved people of Israel, Okay? The saved people, the saints of Israel. 
And there's always been a, uh, Jews that have been right with God. Right now in the church, there's still Jews that are, that are right with God. They come to Christ and they're incorporated into the church. But that's still a remnant. Now when the church is gone and you have the tribulation, providing the pre-trib rap, uh, rapture position is correct, the church not going through the tribulation, but Israel going through the tribulation, there will be righteous Jews then, part of the remnant, okay, that you see in the prophets. Not all Israel is Israel, Paul says. He doesn't mean that's because some of them are Gentiles. No, he means that not all of them are saved. Not all of them are godly. Um First and second coming, we've looked at that. Uh, this goes on. So let's just focus on the covenants here. The Noahic covenant deals with the world, the planet, if you like, and it deals with the animals, and it deals with the plant life. Okay? That's, the, that's in the Noahic Covenant. All of those are covered by the Noahic Covenant. You find these involved in the transformation promises that you find in, uh, well, Isaiah 11 and 65, the wolf lying down with the lamb and so on. Um, I'm just giving you some off the top of my head. Amos 9, where the, the uh, reaper overtakes the sower. You see, there are great, uh, great production that's happening, great blessing. Uh, Zephaniah, again, Zephaniah 3, particularly at the end there. Um, you see many passages of blessing. Isaiah 62, blessing on the ground. It's going to produce, um, all of these things. Hosea 2 also deals with the animal kingdom. Okay? Peace between the animal kingdom and man, again. So, this means that the there are aspects that are involved with those to whom the Noahic covenant is made that are taken up by the other covenants. Um, can't get this thing on. <clears throat> So this is the Noahic, okay? The Abrahamic covenant obviously deals with Israel, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very important when you read Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we're dealing with Jews. Uh, literal descendants, that's the first part of the Noahic covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant, excuse me. So Israel, in order for Israel to be a people, they need a land. So a land is given to them, also covenanted to them. It's there in Genesis 12, 7, but it's particularly given to them in chapter 15 of Genesis. Okay, you're even given the dimensions of the place. So it has uh, land, and then you have the nations coming in. Now these themes are taken up all over the place. I mean, you can't really turn around in the prophets without running into one or all of these different uh, themes. 
But if you want to particularly look at uh, these two, look at the uh, New Covenant passages, for example, in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Okay? This is where it really is brought into focus. And then this key passage, which brings everything together, really, and that's in Jeremiah 33. Okay? Uh, well, don't do it like that, Paul. 33, 14 through 26. Um, you'll see it, all the covenants coming together there. There are about five of them that are, are mentioned. And God says you, you can't break them unless you can make me break the ordinances of heaven. You know, you're not, I'm not going to break these covenants, so deal with it. Um, you know, Psalm, I think it's Psalm 105 deals with the Abrahamic covenant. Let me just look before I give it to you. Uh, yeah, Psalm 105 from verse 6 say, down to verse 11. You see the covenant, the descendants of Jacob, you see the land in there, it's all right there. Okay, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed in Jeremiah in Jeremiah's time either or in Ezekiel's time. Um, the blessing for the nations comes in as a fulfillment, not just of the Abrahamic covenant, because it's there, but also as part of Israel's role, the role they were supposed to fulfill uh, if they'd have been what they should have been in obeying the Mosaic covenant. Remember Ex- uh, Exodus 19. Okay, kingdom of priests and so on. They will be that. So Zechariah, as we saw last week, someone will take hold, or what, ten men will take hold of a garment of a Jew and says, let us go up to... Israel, to worship the God of Israel. Okay? That's going to happen. Israel will be the light to the nations. Okay? So these things will come through. Uh, the priestly covenant, that involves uh, the temple ministrations. And we see that come up not just in Numbers 25, but it is um, it is either inferred or even explicitly spelled out in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. talks about the, the um, house of the Lord. Uh, it's taught, spoken about in certainly Zechariah chapter 14. Remember Zechariah chapter 6 where you have the king who unites both the crown and the priesthood together. Do you remember that? Only Jesus can do that. Um, You have Ezekiel, obviously, chapters 36 and 37 and chapter 40 through 48. That's big time. And then again, this chapter, Jeremiah 33 You'll see the sons of Levi. If I can break my covenant with David and the sons of Levi, okay, that means he won't. It comes back to this covenant here. Um, 
then the Davidic covenant obviously deals with the kingdom and the king, kingdom. Now, the rightful descendant of David is Jesus, and we have his genealogy to prove it. It's the only ancient Jewish genealogy we have, I believe. Now, certainly, if David's line, he can prove his credentials. Um, not that anyone's going to ask him when he comes back, but... Um, but he reigns, he reigns in Jerusalem, but he also reigns over the whole world. But there's also a prince in Jerusalem. It seems to be David. According to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 30 and Ezekiel 34, it seems to be David that's going to be resurrected and reign as a prince in Jerusalem. Uh, that's I mean, he's named specifically. And I don't think it's talking about Christ. I think it talks about David. That's why it says David. Um, We do know that in Ezekiel uh, 44, 46 and so on, we do know that there are offerings that the prince has to make and some of them are sin offerings. Uh, That's because, and we'll go into this in the next course more, that's because remember that even though the world is part of a project that's going to be renovated and restored, it is cursed. Sin is not done away with until Satan and rebellion is done away with at the end of the book of Revelation. There will be sin. And Zechariah and Isaiah, Isaiah 65 and 66, mention it. Okay, even in this righteous kingdom. This is why he rules with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. Okay? Um, So the kingdom is there too. But how do you, how does God who is righteous, how does he bring to fulfillment, literal fulfillment, these oaths that he's undertaken for himself on sinners because we're so recalcitrant. We are so uh, utterly, uh, well, just prone to wander away from him, sin against him, not obey him, do our own thing, be independent. Even Christians like to think independently of God. Like I say, it's our default setting. What's got to happen in order for this to come about? You see, none of these covenants have got the means of their own fulfillment built into them. God's way ahead of us. Because before any of these covenants were even announced, someone else was announced. seed of the woman okay in that curse against Satan now remember even though it's called the proto-evangelium the the pre-gospel it's not because you cannot find in that curse against Satan good news for mankind it's a curse against the serpent okay you can infer it. God's going to deal with the serpent, serpent, and he clothed the man and the woman, and he didn't destroy them. 
So maybe the promise, or maybe, sorry, the curse on the serpent has this promise of a return of mankind back to the proper relationship which was spoiled by man trusting the serpent. But that's inferred. It's not there in Genesis 3.15. But as we start going through the uh, the Old Testament, we see this character cropping up every now and again. Yeah, sometimes he's literally called the seed. They're in... in uh, they're hard to see, but in Genesis 22, 18. Uh, but Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until he comes for whom it is made, or until Shiloh comes. Yes? That's pretty close. Then in Balaam's prophecy, I see him, but not now. Okay? He's afar off. The set, he has the scepter, remember? He's a king. That's in Numbers 24. Then you have, um, let's see. Well, again, we can look at uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 9. Um, someone help me with it. I've forgotten it. Uh, a woman, no, not a woman shall conceive, but the other one. You know, the government will be upon his shoulder, and it's, what's it? What, what else it start off? Nine six. Yeah, but that's that, how's it start? Um, I can't think. Can you? Nine six and seven, but. But yeah, the, the picture of that, when you tell me how it starts, and I can't remember for, for um, a child will be born, to us a child is given, okay, a child will be born, a son is given, a son is given, okay, right, that's it, that, that guy, okay, that guy there, you see, he's maybe, he's connected with this person here. Okay, so if he is, there's more information. He's going to rule. Well, that's the scepter, Genesis 49 and Numbers 24. That's that's in line. He's going to bring righteousness. He's going to bring justice. According to chapter 11, uh, the spirit of God, the spirit of justice, and the spirit of everything else is on him. And he reigns in righteousness. He doesn't uh, judge after the seeing of his eyes or the hearing of ears, but he, but he reigns righteously before God. And he brings peace. In fact, in, in chapter 9, verse 7, he's called the Prince of Peace, isn't he? He brings peace to this cursed earth, to this animal kingdom, to this, uh, this troubled world. You know, so we've just had an earthquake. Okay? He'll stop that. When he came the first time, he demonstrated some of that power. Some of that, the ability to have power over the natural elements. Do you see? And he will bring that power, that, that, uh, p- power of peace, that repressive, um, calming influence against the, uh, tumults of the curse. 
He will bring that when he comes and rules. He can't, it's not something that the planet itself has as as uh, its own quality. Do you see that? That's why the planet itself has to be destroyed. No, no. We have to be remade. The world has to be remade too. I mean, totally. Okay, we've been, we've, uh, us, if you like, we've been born again, but our bodies are, you know, still pretty disappointing, really. <laughs> uh, but, but that we're going to be totally changed. Still have our individuality and so on, but our bodies will be totally changed. This world is going to be totally changed as well. With no more curse. Which means that there won't need to, the Prince of Peace will not need to repress the, the instincts of the animals. He will not need to repress, um, the volcanoes and the, the weather patterns and so on. Do you see? Because the curse will be lifted and it will be an inherent value in the new heavens and new earth. But when he comes back, he's going to do that. He's going to be the Prince of Peace that does that. He's called the branch who rules, and he's called that in uh, Jeremiah and, and Isaiah and Zechariah. Um, he's called the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, who's going to rule. He's the crushing stone that destroys all the kingdoms of the earth and sets up his own worldwide kingdom. Um, he's also in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 is called, and this is key, he's called a covenant. He's called a covenant. I will make you a covenant. Now here's a person who's a ruler who brings salvation and he's called a covenant. So he's a personalized covenant. Okay? How can he be, how can he be a personalized covenant? There's a question. I wonder if the New Testament answers that. How can he be the covenant? How can he establish the covenant? Do you see? It's talking about the same guy. And the covenant that he is and the covenant that he brings is in Jeremiah 31.31 called the new covenant. Although it's been mentioned, it's a salvation covenant. It's a restoration covenant. It's mentioned in, well, Deuteronomy 30 speaks about it, and then many other prophets speak about it too. Brings salvation, change. And the new covenant, folks, takes all of these covenants together, okay, And makes it possible for them to be uh, fulfilled literally, not spiritually, because God always meant what he said. This has always been a project that's been going somewhere. But salvation has got to come to Israel 
When's salvation going to come to Israel according to the Old Testament? First coming? No. Second coming? Yes. They will look on him who they pierced. On him who they pierced. When's salvation going to come to the, the planet, the earth? When he comes. Not at his first coming. He didn't bring the, uh, come to bring peace, but a sword at the first coming. But it is second coming. That's the focus of the covenants. That's the teleology. That's the eschatology. It's not all piled on the end times to, for you to put in a book with a fiery cover on it. It's the whole Bible. It's a living story. God has not given up on his creation. God cares about creation. It was a good idea. It's still a good idea, and he's not changed his mind about that, even though Christians think he has. So, the expectation from all of this, and forgive me if I haven't gone into more detail. I wanted to, to talk more about that introductory stuff because I hadn't talked about it before. Um, the expectation that you would have had if you'd have been listening to Isaiah or listening to Jeremiah or listening to Ezekiel or listening to Zechariah or Zephaniah or Hosea um, or um, Malachi, the expectation is unchanged. This person, whoever he is, this Messiah, he's called Messiah, actually, in Daniel 9. Okay? This Messiah is going to show up. When he shows up, he's going to bring in this great time of peace and safety for Israel. Israel's going to be the head and not the tail. Israel's going to be blessed. All the people will, uh, Israel will rout its enemies. And then the nations will come up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the great place where the king will be. Salvation goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. The earth is restored. There is peace. There is harmony once again because of the presence of this individual. Yes, Messiah gets cut, cut off. Not for himself. Substitutionary atonement. Yes, Isaiah 53 is there. Substitutionary atonement. That's, you know, how do, how do you fit that one together? He's going to reign, but it also seems to be that he's going to die too. Well, what you do is you deal with, you say, it says both of those things, and maybe if you're back in Isaiah's time, you can't fit those two things together. But you believe both of them. Do you see? And wait for more revelation. And that's the position that we're in at the end of the Old Testament. We don't have all of the questions answered. But we do have a pretty big picture. And right at the center of the picture, not artificially thrust into there, but actually the the hub of the whole thing is Jesus Christ for whom, according to the Apostle Paul, the whole thing is created in the first place. He's central to history. 
Do you see? Not because people say he's central, but because the Bible puts him as central. Everything pivots around him. And the hopes of Israel, the hopes of the nations, the hope of the church, which is to be revealed in the New Testament, center in Jesus. So the Bible is Christological in that sense. Do you see? So you don't need to talk about dispensations. You can talk about the covenants. And if you talk about the covenants, you get a lot further. If you just stick to what God said and stop pushing stuff in there that he didn't say, you get a lot further and you get a very big picture. There will be, when Jesus comes back, there will be a repressing of disease. There will be uh, topographical changes in the world. There will be incredible productivity. The, the um, deserts will bloom. The rivers will be, f- you know, fresh water. The seas will be fresh. Um, people will live for a long time. But there will be justice. Sinners will get punished. Nations that don't come up to keep, keep the, th- keep the, Feast of Tabernacles every year will be judged. It won't have any rain. Israel will be where it's at. Not the most despised nation on earth, but the, the nation that is God's peculiar people, special people. That's the Old Testament picture. Yes, there'll be a temple. And that's where we stop, do you see? What we don't do is we don't kind of stop at the Old Testament with Malachi and then grab something from the book of Hebrews and say, yeah, but there won't really be a temple. Because you don't know whether what you're taking from the book of Hebrews should be applied the way that you're applying it. Because again, what are you doing? You are drifting off again into this using your own reason in a magisterial way, not waiting to see what God says. Wait for the unraveling of Revelation. Wait for the creation project to get to the book of Hebrews. Accrue information from the Gospels and from Paul and wait till you get to the book of Hebrews. Maybe you'll be in for a shock. Maybe it doesn't say what you think it says. Maybe when you get there, because of all of this stuff, you'll think, ah, that reminds me of that. And you won't read it like a replacement theologian. So, that's the expectation. That's the expectation. Well, they had a bigger expectation than this. But that's the kind of expectation that when Jesus came onto the scene circa AD 26 and started his ministry, his disciples had that expectation. They had that expectation even after he'd been crucified and resurrected because the first question they asked after he told them about the kingdom was, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Think about that. Why, 
what something should have shook them out of that belief, shouldn't it? No. If we don't hold that same belief, maybe it's because we need to be shaken out of what we believe. Give God a chance to mean what he says.